Hello, everybody, and welcome. And this is the Midnight McBride Show, episode number 26. And this week's show is called Medical Herbalist. And the reason it's called that is because I have a lady with me, Edwina Staniforth. Hello, Patrick. Hi, Hi, Edwina. So, I'll start by how we met. And Hi. there's a lady called Kitty White. And Kitty introduced me to you, put us in touch. She also put me in touch with Colin Unsworth, who's a friend of yours, who you know. Yeah, that's right, yeah. yeah. The naked forager, the Mr. Mushroom, <laughs> yeah. who's done two shows with me as well. And so this is how we connected. Now, mm. I thought we'd maybe just start briefly, because we're going to talk about your journey, like we do on every show. We'll spend yeah. the first half of the show and we'll talk about your journey to this present moment, which is particularly interesting and in some of the things you've done. Yeah. But also then we'll talk about what you're doing now. And maybe just before we get into that, a little definition of what is a medical herbalist? Because I know that although Colin goes foraging and another mate of mine, Ben yeah. Atkinson, goes foraging, they forage for different things, edible mushrooms, things like this. Whereas you're more about Herbs, is that correct? Medicines. Medicines, yeah. Okay. It's really hard to put that definition of a medical herbalist into a few sentences. It's a profession that goes back to the dawn of time when yeah. people were working with plant medicines to keep people and communities healthy. Yeah. And basically that's what we do today, although we work very differently. And it's using the healing power of plants in various forms of medicines to promote health or to actually work with people with specific illnesses. And the thing is, this is comes back from before there was big pharma, before we were putting Absolutely. chemicals and popping pills for fun. This is when we were using what was around us, you know. Absolutely. I mean, this is the medicine of most of the world. And it's something in this country that we've become so disconnected from. But not that far back, people were making medicines from the land and keeping yeah. themselves healthy. I remember as a child, you know, lots of people in the north of England using comfrey, for instance. Everybody grew comfrey. Most people called it bone. And, you know, as a child, I remember sort of injuring myself and my grandma and granddad picking knit bone and putting it on, you know, that part of my body. Yeah. So it's only just been lost. But what is really good is that people are starting to reconnect and re remember about herbal medicine once more and they're getting quite excited about yeah. it. I think I think if you, you only need to go back a few hundred years and if you were maybe three, four hundred years, if you were picking certain medicines and mm. you spend a lot of time in nature they'd burn you you know you'd be a witch wouldn't you you know before we had sort of some of the terrible things that happened in history mm. one of the first things that i'd follow you know we've had slavery and apartheid and things but yeah witchcraft and basically people that were connected with nature and didn't do as they were told were, were burned at the stake and it's hard to believe that that actually happened but you know, this is part of our heritage. But it did, and a lot of that herbal knowledge would have been lost during that time. Yeah. What's really exciting, though, is about coming from Lancashire, that even going as far back as the Industrial Revolution or early in the 20th century, we have an absolutely fantastic herbal history in Bolton, Berwick, Rochdale. I mean, if you think going back to late in the 19th century, early 20th century, it's a really famous herbalist lived in Bolton called Richard Lawrence Hull. 
And, you know, his um, nephew had this stall on Bolton Market up until quite recently. I did not know that. Did you know? This is what a lot of people don't know. If you actually go on the internet to Henrietta's Herbal and you can actually download and look at his books. And in his books, he talks about herbal medicine in Bolton. He talks about picking purple loose strife from Darcy Lever and selling it at the base of the town hall steps. He talks about the epidemics of Bolton and how he used purple loose strife to actually save people's lives. And it's all documented using chickweed, for instance, to help heal lungs in this area. And anybody can go on that and read it. And it's a forgotten history of Bolton, which goes back to early in the 20th century. And if you look to Rochdale, you've got Nell Racker, um, who was born in Bury, yeah. who was a midwife and herbalist and bone setter that lived in Rochdale and people travel for miles to actually see her. And there's a lot of folk history associated with her. But unfortunately for people like me, she never wrote her recipes down, whereas Richard Laurel and Tool did. Yeah. You know, yeah. but we have a fantastic heritage That's in a, Lancashire. I think a really important part of this is passing that knowledge on, mm. isn't it? Which doesn't always happen and sometimes it gets lost. But this is something that you're heavily involved with now, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. You know? As a medical herbalist, I feel very passionate about our native medicines and very passionate about working with communities and helping them to reconnect with, which is what under the, is under the feet. I love doing herb walks with people. And up until lockdown, I've, for the last five, six years, I've been doing local classes which have been very well attended mm, mm. and what gives me a lot of pleasure is seeing ordinary people foraging and making their own medicines using them with the families and then getting that feedback as to wow this worked yeah. you know we've cleared this up this has helped we've made this medicine and even during lockdown this is still ongoing you know people going out foraging and making medicines yeah. it's like back to the old ways because this is how herbal medicine would have been practiced in folk medicine whereas you would have had somebody who knew the plant medicine on every street, the lady of the manor would have known about it, the local wise woman, you know, yeah. the local sort of like healer, like See, Richard Hill. Foraging as well is great yeah. for your mental health because what do you do when you forage? You've got to go outside and you've got to spend time in nature and you've got to detach from all your normal stresses and worries. You're out spending time with like-minded people as well. So it's a good experience. It's a win-win-win. It is. I mean, some people say there's actually three ways in which people, or three stages of the healing when you actually make your own medicines. One, like you say, is to go out in nature and to disconnect from the modern world and to start to connect with the local plants. And you don't have to go very far. You could even go to the weeds in your own back gardens, like dandelions, like nettles, like chickweed, even the daisies in your lawn, and you've got great medicine. The second stage Stage is actually harvesting and taking that medicine back to your kitchen and making something, something as simple as making a salve or a tea. And then the third level of healing always comes when you start to work with that and when you start to see the results of using that medicine within your body or your family's body. Yeah. And But the healing's already started as soon as you start to go out and you connect. And it's so empowering, Patrick. Mm. I'm just laughing at the fact that when we discussed the pre-show chat, we said what we'd do is... I'll just mention, and you give us a brief definition of what a medical herbalist is at the start of the show before we do your journey. We're 10 minutes into the show. We've, we've not started on your journey yet. So Absolutely not. Mm. You know, I mean, if you're going to be in a medical herbalist, I remember one of our tutors when I trained over 10 years ago that said there are so many different ways of being a herbalist. And there are. 
you know. I mean, yeah. I'm a consultant medical herbalist. I see patients in clinic, but I also like to make my own medicines and I also like to connect communities mm. to working with medicines and making their own medicines. And besides consultations, you're running workshops as well and you're yeah. spreading that knowledge on. Absolutely, you know, yeah. yeah. And I can see that, you know, how people are working with that knowledge. It is so empowering. And when people forage, and I'm seeing when people make the medicines, that joy that comes into their eyes, you know, when they start to connect with the land around them, because this is what our ancestors did. Mm. You know, this is hardwired into us to connect to the land and to work with the plants for healing because they've been here. I mean, our, our bodies sort of have evolved to working with the plants as medicines. And it's like when our bodies remember the healing starts. Yeah. I'm going to go right back to the beginning, Edwina, and we're going to start with your journey. Now. Right, yeah. I, I do, I'm not even going to mention Mog, Mogwart, is it? Mogwart. Yeah, yeah, because I know you'll just go off on one. Like, we were we, talking about that earlier, weren't yeah, we? Yeah, I know. Yeah. So we will talk about that later. And we'll, I, I want to talk more about this, but I also think it's really relevant to say, to show somebody's journey, because a lot of people do things in life, especially if they're doing something that's quite amazing and people yeah. think, why? What yeah. brought you to this point? And that's really fascinating as well. So we're starting in 1964 and we're in Radcliffe, is that right? Well, I was actually born in, in Crumpsall Hospital, so yeah. my first year in Blakely. And then moved into, lived in Heaton Park. So I was about six then we came to Radcliffe. So I've been here ever since. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's been a herbalist in an urban or semi-urban environment. Because a lot of people think when they hear my herbalist, think I live in a cottage somewhere in the countryside. Yeah, I don't. With, a, with a little basket. And, yeah. yeah. You know, I live in a three-bedroom, well, four-bedroom semi, sort of along the, in Barring Bolton Road. Well, this is it. Because yeah. when we had the pre-show chat, you talked about the fact that, you know, there's stuff growing on the side of the motorway and, and, and it's it's still mm. around us, even though yeah. you don't have to go to the lakes to find this, you know, no. these things. In fact, sometimes when you go to the edges, when you go to the wastelands, when you go to the hedgerows, when you go to even your own back garden or the where you've not weeded, that's where you find the herbs, yeah. you know. And people think you have to journey to the Native American rainforest or and commune with shamans in North America or Africa to find medicinal plants. You don't let right at your feet. Just as soon as you open your door, unless you're putting weed killer down or weed in, that's where they are yeah. and you can find them. We, we had a, an interesting conversation about this prior to starting the show where we talked about the fact that I'd done ayahuasca with tumour, mimosa, uh, peyote, mushrooms, buffalo virus, uh, basically a lot of what are used as healing plants, most of them from originally from South America, shamanic plants. And you haven't done these. And the conversation went down the lines of something that I was exploring these things when you said, we've got everything here. We you have, know? yeah. Yeah. We yeah. have. I think there's always that temptation because like we were talking about with the witch hunts mm. and how and um, industrialization, how all our spirituality knowledge has somehow been taken from us or maybe we've just given it up, you know, yeah. in return for comfort or somebody looking after us. I don't know. But we've become disconnected to what's here under our feet. And we forget about all the medicines, you know, even things like me. I've, I've never, ever done sort of, um, you know, hallucinogens. Yeah. But, you know, there is psychedelic mushrooms, but even teacher plants as well. Yeah. You know, like mugwort is one of our great teacher plants <laughs> that is just <laughs> growing alongside the M62 and, yeah. you know, the M866. Well, we're going to give mugwort its own special little segment Absolutely. at the end and we'll get into <laughs> yeah. it, okay, because otherwise we'll never get through your oh, journey. Yeah. But. So Radcliffe, 
your local lady and you're a family of five, is that right? So yeah, your brothers was, and sisters. I was the eldest of five. We were very poor. Um, mm. You know, my dad was sort of like, um, was on the sixth quite a long time. And my brothers used to go out foraging. And I never really, I was a bit too above that, I think, as a, a teenager. But my brothers did and they used to bring things back. They also brought mushrooms back as well. Yeah. Um, sort of psilocybins and my mum thought yep. they were making mushroom soup once <laughs> and being rich she's really impressed. Mushrooms on toast again lads. Absolutely yeah <laughs> yeah so yeah she found this pan boiling away my brothers you know were sniggering at the time so yeah we, we used to sort of forage and we used to sort of skip forage as well for food yeah. so yeah we weren't that well off. I think it's it's beautiful because sometimes people have a lot of money and for that reason they don't connect with nature they buy everything they need it all comes out of a packet the fact that you're poor might mean that because you didn't have as much food and stuff, you ended up spending time in nature foraging. So poor actually can be a benefit in some respects. It, a lot of people that don't have a lot of money are more yeah. connected with nature and less connected with technology and, you know, the material world. So. Absolutely. I mean, like growing up in the 70s, you know, everybody was, I, I desperately wanted fast food, processed food, because yeah. that's what all my mates were having. You know, that was just coming in, but we were that poor. It was just whatever my mum could make. And it was usually boiling up bones to make stews and, <laughs> you know, making really great food out of nothing. So consequently, we've all grown up very healthy. Yeah. You know, as well, you know, she used to grow stuff, used to go out sort of picking things as well. A common theme for people that come on this show, Edwina, is that the people that have helped other people, educated other people and cared for other people. And as we're going to find out with your journey, you've done all of those. Mm -hmm. And yeah. the first step in that direction was you became a nurse. I was, yeah. I trained as a nurse at 18 at North Manchester General Hospital. And I worked there when I qualified as a staff nurse. I worked on medicine and surgery. And then I got a sister's post on yeah. medical and endocrinology ward. Um, and I was there till, I was probably about there for about 13 years until I hurt my back, uh, moving a patient and was yeah. forced to retire from nursing. That's a, uh, a common thing with yeah, nurses, was, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. Quite a nasty back injury. So, yeah. you know. But then you moved into other areas, didn't you? Which is, did, this is the yeah. start of maybe your less formal and more, I'd say, the spiritual. Yeah. I think so. I mean, already as a nurse, I'd started to get interested in complementary medicine. And being a sister, you know, you're doing lots of drug rounds and, you know, you're planning patients' care. And I noticed that when patients were, were in pain or they were distressed, the usual thing was to go to the drug trolley. And I just thought there must be something better. For themselves, yeah? Yeah, well, yeah. Yeah, so well, for me as a nurse to go and do that, you know, it was about somebody's anxious, so let's, let's, get, let's get them something or somebody's in yeah. pain. But yeah. starting to realise that what people needed was something a lot deeper and that... You know, I'd sometimes sit there with an anxious patient or a frightened patient, somebody in pain, just even massaging the hands or the feet and noticing that response to it. And this is worse sort of than reflexology. Yeah, I trained yeah. as a clinical reflexologist. I mean, this is going back about, oh, about, um, I'd say about 26 years, uh, you know, trained in quite extensively in Manchester. And um, 
with a guy called Clive O'Hara, who's sort of dead now. He was great, really good teacher. And um, I left nursing sort of soon afterwards because of my back injury. And so decided to set up in private practice. So was this aromatherapy and reflexology at this stage or was it initially reflexology? It was initially reflexology mm -hmm. and trained later as an aromatherapist because there was always that interest in plant medicine. And so mm -hmm. I explored it initially through essential oils. It's, so, it's funny to me because when you use that term in the circles that I mix in, when you say plant medicine, and which covers a whole array of plants, but yeah. predominantly it's used to describe the hallucinogenic plants of South America generally, yeah. you know, so yeah, ayahuasca tumor and things like this. But when you say plant medicine, it covers so many other it does, yeah. yeah. It does yeah. for me. You know, it's, it's a whole range of um, using plants with medicinal properties, but plant medicine goes so much deeper, you know, to plant spirit medicine, to connecting with plants, to teacher plants. Mm. You know, it's, we tend, I mean, I think one of the um, things that we have in the West is that we tend to see plants as a commodity, you know, that somehow that they give us like chemical constituents that yeah. we use in our medicine that are extensively researched and we use like drugs. Plant medicine doesn't work like no, that. It's you not know. compounds and chemicals. It's more no, about, it's the, the, well, if, from my opinion anyway, the spirit of the plant. Yeah, you know? it is about the spirit of the plant. It and But also that array of constituents that the plant produces mainly for itself, but it's own environment as well and which benefits human beings so when a plant produces something that can heal skin it's produced primarily for that plant because it can heal the plant yeah yeah it's just that our bodies the plants came here first and our bodies have evolved around what plants produce yeah. i'm a firm believer that for every ailment there is a, a cure or a plant that can heal it. You know, if you get stung by a nettle, it's usually right next to it growing dock leaves. And it's not dock leaves, actually. They're the best remedy oh, for well, it. You'd be surprised you, yeah. to know. But yeah. in South America, where we're destroying the rainforest, yeah. I, I genuinely believe that every, every ailment that exists for human beings, there is already in existence um, a remedy or a cure for that. But yeah. we're not looking in the right places and we're destroying what's left of it. It's, you know, it's we quite are. sad. And here too, you yeah. know, um, there's a guy um, who busks um, as you go into Perry Market, a really old man, and he's sort of as gypsy origin. And quite often we've spoken about the plants. And, um, you know, he's told me, because he knows a lot about plant medicine, that in the time of his life, which is something going up to about 90 years, that deterioration of plants, medicinal plants that he's seen. So if you think about how we spray, you know, the hedgerows, we spray our gardens. Yeah. Things that were very commonplace are not there now or are very sort of rare. So we're doing the same in this country. We're destroying our own medicines. Yeah. I mean, this brings it's a whole other debate about when mm. you start introducing chemicals into the world of plants and whether it's, you know, genetically modified foods or whether it's it's just pesticides and things. And then pretty much you can buy apples, bananas, but unless you're very careful about where these are sourced, everything's yeah. got chemicals on there, hasn't it? You know, yeah. in supermarkets. They even they call apples in wax to make them last longer. And there's, I saw a... I like a little clip, a documentary about some of the tricks they use to make food last longer and the appearance of the food so that they were consistent with the colour and the size. And, you know, you'll have to look really hard to source, unless you grow them yourself or you know where they're coming from. Most fruits and vegetables have been, been treated with chemicals at some point. 
Yeah, they yeah. have. I mean, it's, it's the same with when people buy herbs as well. When you buy, um, you know, over-the-counter herbs, when you go to, um, you know, health food shops, you know, that some plants, specifically things like chamomile, you know, that have a massive commercial value, some of those are sprayed as well. So it's, you know, people think that by getting a herb that it's going to be organic, it's not necessarily yeah. at all. Do you, do you use, this is a bit, uh, a bit of a sidetrack, but, you know, like turmeric and certain... Mm-hmm. herbs and spices, you know, from other countries and things. Do you use those as well? Absolutely. I mean, even yeah. though I'm a believer in, I'm a believer in local medicine. Yeah. And that local medicine includes what you have in your kitchen cupboard and what you can get from your market. I mean, being here in Bolton, we've got a fantastic market. You know, you can get things like fresh turmeric, ginger, yeah. you know. Cumin. And what, and cumin. Uh, yeah. yeah, everything. I like a lot of the Indian spices. They seem yeah. to really help me, you know. I de- they detox me. They yeah. cleanse me. Yeah. Well, they're, they're absolutely fantastic because, I mean, if you think, say you're going to start with a cold and one of the great antivirals, you know, that you can have is ginger, you know, fresh yeah. ginger, not dried. Yeah. And either juicing it or just grating it fresh, boiling it up, you can throw in it some cinnamon, you can put in some star anise, mm. you know, a few cloves. It's and, quite good because a yeah. lot of things like gingers become, you go to some yeah. place and you have a ginger shot and they become quite fashionable as well. So people yeah. are starting to... Look at look at these remedies, yeah. you know. Yeah. yeah, I mean, these are about. I mean, we, we it's, it's great that we're such a multicultural country, and we can get access, you know, to these fresh herbs and spices. So I always see those as, even though they're not native, as local medicines yeah. that everybody can access. And I think it's very empowering for people to know that when they've got a cold starting, that they can go to the kitchen cupboard, you know, or to the market, you know, they can make a medicine which absolutely can hit a cold virus on its head. Yeah, you know, and- which is ginger. And, and also, a lot of people become ill and then they look for a cure or a remedy. Yeah. Whereas there's certain things you can take that if you take them regularly, that you're unlikely to get a cold. You know, these preventative, uh, very healthy yeah. uh, herbs, medicines, etc. So there are some things that you don't take when you, it's, you've already developed the symptoms. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Well, I think there's this, this sort of like two ways of looking at health. And one of them is keeping your body healthy you know, making sure that you've got lots of nutrients, micronutrients, that you keep that you keep the microbiome in your body healthy. I mean, what people, a lot of people don't realise, Patrick, mm. is that for every sort of 10 of our cells in our body, there's 90 cells which are not us, which are the microbiome, which are yeah. sort of like the bacteria, viruses, fungi, parasites. And there's only something about, something like 1% of our genome, which is actually human, the rest is other. And it's this other that make up what is it is to be human. So when we talk about me or you, it's not about me or you. It's about us. It's like your, your whole body is like an ecosystem like Mother Earth. Yeah. And this ecosystem called the microbiome is what is about keeping our sort of immune system healthy. It keeps us in good mental health. It helps with digestion. It helps synthesize yeah. hormones. In fact, we could not operate without it at all. And systematically, we're destroying it by our lifestyles. From not, I mean, people automatically think about antibiotics, you know, as, as being the destroyer, but it's not. It's things like glycosates. It's about the fungicides in our food. Stress is a really big one. Yeah. You know, pollution, um, you know, mercury in your fillings, the list goes on and on. So when we destroy this, we're destroying our bodies. And so this is a major part of our immune system. 
you know. And so I think the first line in keeping yourself healthy is to keep your microbiome healthy as well. I like the way you reference mental health because if you feel good, if yeah. you're putting the right things in your body and you feel good, it affect, obviously it's going to affect your mood. And, does, and yeah. So what you're putting into your body, if you're putting things that are going to increase your physical health, yeah. generally affects your mental health also. They're connected, you yeah, know, very absolutely. much so. Yeah. And I also stress, I believe that stress is the cause of 90, 95% of all illness. You know, it's... Yeah. If you're in it, they say that if you're in a happy, healthy state with a healthy mind, yeah. then disease and other ailments can't really exist because your body's operating at 100%. You know, it's going to fight everything off. It's going to be able to deal mm. with them. But when you introduce stress and tension into the system and, you, you know, you're, you're unhappy, yeah. then your body, there's resistance there. It's not doing what it's supposed to do. And you can't fight these things off and your immune system plummets drastically. You know, yeah, so. it does. Yeah, it yeah. does. I mean, stress is major because going back to the microbiome, that is massively affected by stress. The microbiome doesn't like stress. It damages it. So when you think about at the moment, you know, during lockdown, how stressful people have felt, you know, that is going to be doing a lot of damage to people's bodies. Yeah, because there's most people I know, including myself, and certainly at the early days of the current situation, uh, yeah, I was depressed for a while. You know, yeah. it affected everybody, I think, didn't it? You know, it massive did, yeah. effect. So, Edwina, what I'm going to do is, oh. as we're talking about your journey, if it's okay, if we veer off a little bit, I'm going to throw questions in as we go because as my mind thinks, hang on a minute, what about this or whatever, I'm I'm interested and I, I feel like it's relevant and we're going to do that. So Yeah, I'm very passionate, as well as Mugwort, I'm very passionate about the human microbiome as well. I would never have guessed yeah, no. because to a natural health practitioner or a herbalist, that is the key to, that is the absolute root of a lot of ill health that many people are experiencing today. So when I'm seeing patients in consultation, that is one of the first things, or not one of the first things, but one of the things I sort of tend to direct questions towards in what's happening in somebody's gut health and how that might have affected because, you know, leading on from that, you've got lots of things like, you know, as I say, mental health problems, you've got autoimmune diseases, um, you know, it's, it's absolutely massive. And if, you know, viewers want to find out further about the human microbiome, you know, there's some great sites on the internet, you know, the Human Microbiome Project being one of them. And I guarantee once you start to learn about the microbiome, it will blow your mind. Yeah. You know, it just has you reading with an open mouth thinking, oh, Oh my goodness, they form communities, they have transport, they teach the young, they have a military school, you know, in your gut that trains your, your white cells. You know, it's mind-blowing stuff. I mean, this is the cutting edge of medical science at the moment, yeah. you know, and I encourage everybody to read about the microbiome. And of course, one of the keys to working with it is, you know, you think about a lot of um, Eastern European countries that make a lot of fermented foods. Yeah. You know, um, yeah, fermented fish in a tin in uh, yeah. Denmark or Sweden or yeah. whatever. And, Sauerkrauts, yeah. brines. I mean, every yeah. culture of the world, even this one did, you know, has a history of fermented foods. So when you're having fermented foods, you know, natural cultures, then you're keeping your own human microbiome really healthy. Yeah. I mean, you know, like in Lancashire, we all had sort of like red cabbage. You yep. know, and we, we associate it now with being in vinegar. Well, that would have been like a sauerkraut. 
yeah. you know, and I know older people and certainly, you know, my grandma as well. People used to ferment it with salt because you didn't have masses of vinegar, you know, to make pickles with or to make sort of like um, red cabbage with. So people fermented it in, yeah. in salt and it tastes exactly the same. So, for instance, you know, if you go into a supermarket, you'll get like Yakult or something like this. Yeah. These, I mean, are they any good? They're just, they're just sort of um, very sort of weak, yeah. really. I mean, if you're really working with gut health, you know, you're wanting to work with things like your fermented foods, you know, on lots of different levels. I mean, people like to have things like, you know, um, kimchi or kombucha or um, kefir. You know, there's a whole range of them. And yeah. then you've got all your probiotics and prebiotics. But I'm going to give a word of warning here okay. with it, right? Because people get really excited when they learn about the, the human microbiome and fermented foods. And because some of us have such like damaged microbiomes, the danger is with a lot of us to go out and to sort of go and absolutely um, go and get loads of stuff and go, you know, go and buy loads of it and try it because we always think more is better. What sometimes happens then is people feel ill. Yeah. And because you go into sort of what's called like a die off. So if you think when you've got a damaged human microbiome, you get lots of opportunist bacteria which can sort of um, increase. So you think about a healthy community, you know, your community and you get something goes wrong within that community, like a breakdown of law and order, you're always going to have the criminals, the looters, which were always there in the first place, yeah. which will sort of, because there's nobody there to keep tabs on them, yeah. will sort of go and do a lot of damage. And that's what happens, yeah. you know, with your gut. You know, as soon as you start to have uh, damage or deterioration, the good guys, the bad guys that have always been there, you know, can cause problems. So when you start to take things like fermented foods in, it's almost like you've got a battle raging. Yeah. And one of the things you get when you get a battle raging is you get lots of dead bodies, which sort of break down. So when people who have got a damaged microbiome start to go on fermented foods or they really sort of like go full belt with the probiotics, they can feel quite ill yeah. because it, there's a lot of toxins there. So there always something that has got to be taken very sort of like carefully and just sort of, you know, go easy on them and build them up. I love the way you use the analogies you use are like, there's a little yeah. town over here and they're having a strike and yeah. they've not been going to work and they've yeah. been breaking the law. And yeah, communities breaking <laughs> yeah, down yeah, and yeah, all yeah. of a sudden you get the looters and, yeah. you know, you it's get that. Great. They've always been there, but never been able to do anything no. and that's that's what it's like in our bodies sometimes with with stress i write about in the book you can have two people that smoke all the life and one will get to 50 and have a heart attack and mm. the other will live to 100 and live yeah. a full healthy life so although the smoking is a, a massive factor yeah there's other things that are involved there and are, yeah. i think stress is that trick absolutely stress is a healthy mind you can get away with a lot unhealthy mind you just veer off track slightly you're going to be ill because your body can't fight stuff off it doesn't Absolute, work properly yeah. you know so stress is a massive factor but also which actually is i wanted to ask you do you drink do you smoke i don't smoke but no. i do like i do like to have a glass of wine yes. in the evening a little bit of prosecco yeah you know it's a weekend i, I asked all the guests this by yeah. the way i'm just curious because i've had bodybuilders in here and um ladies that are expert in health in other, yeah. in other fields and, and, and other other people. And I'm always interested to find, do they then take these 
other substances that are commonly used, you know, cigarettes and drinking and things like this? Yeah, you know? I've never smoked. No. You know, I've never sort of used drugs at all. No. I do like a glass of wine every now and then. Um, How dare I, you? Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, that's it. People, people think because you're a herbalist that you just be going to be on a raw food diet. <laughs> yes. You know, but we, we eat a healthy diet. You know, we go through a lot of vegetables. I like fermented foods, yeah. you know, use a lot of And another thing. Everything we talked about is on the land. And yeah. I used to take a lot of other supplements, especially when I was um, training as well. Yeah. And spirulina was one of those, which yeah. is predominantly taken from the sea. Yeah. You know, is that something, you know, it's, do you look at stuff that isn't on the land as well, stuff from the sea or not? Um, you can do it. I mean, if you, if you, if you go into seaweeds, you yeah. know, sort of like native seaweeds, there's a vast array of sort of nutrients. Because spirulina in particular is a... A massive source of protein, you know. It is, so, yeah. but you know what people forget is that we have this, you know, things that superfoods in our own back gardens. Yeah. You know, and these are the things that people have forgotten. Nettles, nettles have got sort of mega mega nutrients. Dandelion. If I mean, I've, I've read somewhere that if you actually in a, it's a really great book actually called The Wild Wisdom of Weeds by Katrina Blair, and she talks about dandelion and you know she's she's a proper wild woman. She'll go into the wilds with nothing. You know, and part of, you know, and sort of like eats from nature. You know, it's, it's a great book. And she talks about dandelion, and she said that when you're looking at the root, the stem, the seeds, the flowers, the leaves, it's a complete amount of proteins. It's a complete food for the human body. You yeah. know, chickweeds are mega nutrients. In our weeds, you know, we have mega mega nutrients. We don't even need to go to the health food shop. Because I've, I've had nettle soup. Yeah. You know, I've, I've had some things and I've eaten some flowers and various things. Yeah. But, but I didn't know whether you could make a, you know, sustain a full diet from, from Yeah, those I mean, I, th I think for a full diet, you're going to need more than, so, you know, if you think about ancestors, you know, they had sort of, you know, fats in there, proteins, yeah. carbohydrates. And a hog. Yeah, and a hog, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but what it's about is that, you know, quite often we think that we've got to get our superfoods from the health food shop, that they have to come from somewhere across um, the other side of the world. We don't, we just go out of our back door. You know, um, nettles are free, nettles are everywhere. You know, I wouldn't advise picking them at the moment because they're sort of, you, you, you know, they've, they've gone to seed, but, you know, you yeah. can just trim them back and use the new shoot and use the new leaves, uh, especially in spring, dry them, you know, you've got, just everything is just there you know even in the northwest you know as long as you're not spraying your own back garden and you have a weed patch you know with nettles and chickweed you know you've got your own super nutrients yeah they're just mega you know as as well as you know you can ask any forager as well apart from sort of acting medicinally they have a massive food use i mean you know nettles you know, absolute superfood. You know, you can use them not just in soups, you can just use them like spinach, uh, use them in pestos. You can sort of dry them, crumble them, put them on the food. Um, you know, dandelions, you know, young dandelion leaves are mega nutrients. Yeah. Chickweed, chickweed's amazing. It tastes delicious. I'm just going to say at this point, we nearly called the show, but we didn't. Wild weed woman, didn't we? <laughs> which, I, which I wanted to go with, but yeah. we went with the medicinal... Yeah. Herbalist, yeah. Yeah. So, back to your journey, Edwina. And we're now at the point you've done reflexology, you've done aromatherapy, and then with this reflexology, you then go to different lands, you travel across the world. Well, I did, I actually, I actually got, it, it, what happened was I was um, working at, I did some work with reflexology and at Berry Hospice for a few years, and then we worked at the Berry Cancer Support Centre, was one of the co-founders of that, so... 
and then I worked at Christie's for a while. So I use like reflexology a lot with people with cancer and um, got some work published on it um, in a clinical reflexology book. And then somebody asked me if I'd come and speak at a clinical reflexology conference right. on people with cancer in Israel. So we'll rewind a bit there because yeah. you've just covered so much ground. Yeah, okay. You co-founded... Berry Cancer Support Centre, yeah. That was going back about, oh, it must be about 16, probably even longer than that, 16 years ago. And was working at Berry Hospice as a volunteer, reflexologist. Did, did you know people that had had cancer or have you been affected by cancer as a reason? No, it was my next door neighbour. Right. I mean, she's not with us, sadly. Um, she was only in her 40s and, you know, she was um, diagnosed as having cancer. Yeah. And... She, they were told, her and her husband had gone to Christie's and was told there was nothing more they could do. Yeah. And so they didn't know where to go. They wandered around the Trafford Centre because they didn't know where to go or who to talk to. And, you know, working in the community as a reflexologist, I was hearing the same stories from people, that people were having a cancer diagnosis, that had nobody to talk to, that had nowhere to go to. Yeah. And yes, there was Berry Hospice, but that wasn't meeting that need of people who were not at that stage of needing palliative care. And it was just becoming increasingly obvious that there was something that needed to be done in our area. And I waited for a few years for somebody else to do it and then realised that nobody else was going to open one. And so, you know, I started looking at other centres around the country to yeah. see what other people were doing and was quite inspired by some of the community-based ones that ordinary people had opened as opposed to a local authority. And so got together with a few people that I knew. Lynn Marland, who still works at Very Cancer Support Centre, was one of them. And yeah. Elaine Speakman, who's sadly not with us. And uh, we got together. We got a really small lottery grant, grant. And somebody gave us a few thousand in a, a legacy. And we went to a local church hall. We got some equipment. We called ourselves Break Cancer Support Centre. We had everything in a cupboard which we loaded and unloaded sort of once a week. We invited the mayor to open it yeah. and we just opened ourselves as a cancer dropping centre providing someone to talk to, complimentary therapists, advice. I mean, bear in mind there were some of us ex-nurses. Yeah. And this went on from strength to strength over the years. I mean, I sort of managed it from this church hall for about two, three years. And then other people took over and actually took it to the next level. I mean, what we have in, you know, Berry now is it's got its own sort of functional building, um, which is really beautiful. It's massively supported by the, the community. Yeah. And it's open about three or four days a week. They've done absolutely amazing things. And even though I don't work there anymore, you know, I sort of keep in touch with people who work there and it's it is done amazing things within the community. You know, and accepting people from, you know, um, you know, those surrounding areas as well. You know, it's yeah. an amazing place. And you got Nominated for Bury Woman of the Year. Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. that's pretty. That's very nice to get that yeah. kind of uh, yeah. appreciation. You know that accolade. Yeah. Uh, it was. It was a great deal at the town hall. I mean, I, I was quite <laughs> relieved actually. I wasn't voted as Bury Woman of the Year because that would have been quite a commitment. But for me, it was just an absolute honour. You know, that I was nominated. Mm. You know, it seems such a long time ago, but yeah, great honour. And it sort of you know gave us a bit of a increased our profile of the cancer support centre yeah. that. You, so in the pre-show chat, Edwina, you also talked about Christie's briefly. Yeah. And I've had a lot of experience with Christie's. My yeah. mother had cancer. She's doing very well now. Yeah. 
But I was very impressed with Christie's. It was, yeah, I mean, if you, look, place, if you're lucky yeah. enough to go there and, you know, either yourself or somebody you know or your family has cancer, the treatment, the advice, the care, the, the, yeah. the centre that you go to to talk to people, it's, it is a pretty special place, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's amazing. And you were working there, weren't you? I was. I was Deputy Clinical Lead for Complementary Therapies then. I mean, that's, that's... That's a big title. It is, yeah, it? it is, De yeah. De Deputy Clinical Leader for Complementary Therapy. That's right, wow. yeah. I mean, this is going back to, um, oh, it must be about 15 years ago. And, uh, you know, it, it, it was great to actually work there because I had my only areas to work in, which was the critical care unit and chemo suite and, you know, the adult leukemia unit. I think it's changed that name now. And it was such it was such an amazing privilege to work there with a great team of people, you know, working with complementary therapies um, right at the sort of, you know, the cutting edge of, you know, people um, who were just so sick but also yeah. just so desperately needing, um, you know, something like this. Um, you know, it was, for me, it was just an amazing time, an amazing thing to do. So did you do reflexology there as I well? I did, yeah. yeah. I worked as, I did reflexology. We did um, massage, aromatherapy. I was an aromatherapist on the um, leukaemia unit and critical care unit. Uh, which was which was absolutely amazing because what was awesome was knowing that when you're doing reflexology on somebody's feet or you're doing treatments that they're absolutely they, they've got their oxygen perfusion levels sort yeah. of on a screen in front of you and they've also got the heart rate and the blood pressure and to actually see the effect that you're having that's actually being monitored um, was I was probably one of the only people in the country as reflexologists that could actually see that when you actually worked people's feet, especially like the lung area, that you're increasing, increasing oxygen perfusion. Yeah. Um, maybe for the people watching at home, reflexology is where you massage somebody's feet and each part of the foot relates to a part of the body. Is that that's right? That's right, yeah. yeah. And those areas are on the hands as well. And so people see it as just primarily a relaxing thing, but it's about sort of working with the body to help it to heal itself because people people we're not too sure how it works it just does yeah it's like a double whammy almost because you get in a massage which on your feet which is pleasant yeah plus then you're activating and doing things to other parts of the body and specific parts of the foot relate yeah. to specific parts of the that's body that's right yeah. yeah i mean you can work with somebody's feet and you can tell exactly where all the imbalances are i mean that's amazing to me yeah, yeah, yeah i mean people think that when you work the feet that's it you're going to be able to tell that somebody's got cancer they've got this it's, it's not like that. You, you, you can see where the areas are out of balance. And by talking to somebody, you can sort of work a little bit deeper with that. Um, but I mean, the main thing is with reflexology is that when you're working over the feet and over specific areas, you can help to bring about healing within the body. The body has an amazing capacity to heal itself. I call it an incredible, miraculous healing machine. It is, we, yeah. It, it can heal almost anything. Some people get better from cancer some don't yeah. so clearly the body has the ability given the right environment and yeah. nutrition it can repair itself from cancer because yes, it, it does happen you know but yeah. not with everybody so yeah. i mean if you think as well about sort of if you cut yourself it's not the dressing that heals. It's not even the herb that heals. What it is, it's your body's capacity to regenerate yeah. and to heal, and it knows what to do. So when you're working with reflexology and like a lot of you know natural therapies, you're working with that body's amazing 
innate capacity to heal itself, you know, yeah. on whatever le level. Sometimes you can get miracles with it, but sometimes, you know, the best you can get is just somebody feeling very much at peace and in relaxation or getting a better night's sleep or getting pain relief. Yeah. You know, I mean, I've been a reflexologist for 26 years. I've seen amazing things, you know, I've done yeah. amazing things with it, yeah. you know. Is it Chinese originally from China? People say it is. I mean, there is sort of like evidence that it was used in ancient Egypt, but I think we all used it. Mm. I think we all used it. I mean, think instinctively about you have, I notice with some people say that they might get a bad back and they'll say, I've got this area on my foot that's really sore. And which is something I notice sort of on myself, you get odd pains or aches on your feet and you rub them and you make them better. So I think it was something that was here as well. You know, I think sometimes there is that tendency to look towards the east or somewhere else. Yeah. I think our ancestors knew about it, but maybe didn't call it reflexology. Maybe they just did it. It yeah. was instinctive. Yeah. You know, yeah. It seems that in the East, the science things maybe record them better than we did, you know, with yeah. reflexology and with acupuncture and things like this, they, you know, because they then documented and talked about the meridians and the energy yeah. systems of the body and things like this. So there's definitely a lot of valuable knowledge there. But like you there say, is. maybe maybe it was all here once as well and we just lost it. I think maybe it. it was. I mean, I think a yeah. lot's been taken from us. We We don't know what was here. You know, I mean, certainly looking at some of the old herbals, you know, our ancestors had very different ways of viewing the body, you know, and had their own sort of like, you know, systems of diagnosis, you know, yeah. sometimes some of which we use today. Yeah. Um, but we tend to forget the stuff in this land as well that our ancestors, you know, there's native traditions here, yeah. which is what I'm very interested about. You know, our own native traditions. Well, finish your journey and I'm going to let you Go loose. On, sorry. And you can, I'm going Go to on. let you rip on everything. Um, Go on. So then Israel next. So this is the reflexology where you went to Israel. Maybe tell us a little bit about that. I was asked to talk at um, a conference on reflexology of people with cancer. And mainly because I'd had some work published um, in, a, in a clinical book okay. on it. And the guy that organised it said, well, you've got to come. What, do you, what have you had published? Tell us about that. I've got, there was a book that Peter McCareth did, oh gosh, many years ago called um, Clinical Reflexology. And I was not, asked, not wines of Rochdale or anything like that. No, 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 was it? No, he was, he was, um, he was my sort of clinical leader, Christus, yeah. and, you know, great man, you know, um, he did a, a lot of really good things there. And, um, you know, he published a book on clinical reflexology and, you know, asked different people to write different chapters. So yeah. I got asked to co-write one on working with people with cancer and palliative care. And then wrote another one in another book he did, you know, specifically about, you know, working with people with cancer as well. Yeah. So the guy that was organising the conference said, can you come over and, you know, do something? Um, and there was, it was great because there was, you know, quite big names in reflexology at the time that had gone over there. And um, it was very nerve wracking to do a talk, particularly in a foreign country, knowing that people, it was an international conference that people had headphones on with translators. Oh, it's like being in the, you know, uh, European Union and being in one oh, of these, yeah, you know, was, in Brussels. Yeah, I, I, was, I was only there for a few days, you know, because with having sort of like young children, I went back, but I managed to get to Jerusalem for the day and that was an amazing place. And yeah, I'd love to go. I've not been. Oh, it's, I'd love to go. It was awesome. 
awesome mm. it was mm. you know i loved it going to israel you know it was i was just there for about three days but yeah. fantastic it's, experience it's on my bucket list i yeah. last year i went to egypt for the mm. first well i've been yeah. to egypt about six times but never been to the pyramids and we hired a driver and I went to the pyramids and the Valley of the Kings and the temple at Karnak and did mm. everything in two days and we saw yeah. everything. And that for me, it, I was just in bliss the whole time, you know, and, and Jerusalem's like that. It's it's somewhere where I, before I leave this world, I need to go. You it's know. very awesome place. And I ended up, uh, we ended up losing the rest of the party. So I was there with this American woman, very, really young Californian princess type woman. And we, we, we just lost the rest of the party. And um, we decided to seek out the sacred feminine in Jerusalem and just go with the flow yeah. and just trust that we would find our way back to our sort of lift. And we did. You know, we, we ended up going to the, um, I think it was the cave of the Virgin Mary. And we, we tried to blag our way in sort of like the temple of Mary Magdalene, Church of Mary Magdalene. The nuns wouldn't let us in. And, <laughs> um, you know, we went to the feminine past the Wailing Wall. It was a really magical, sacred experience. Yeah. You know, loved it. Edwina, I was going to ask you a question. and. Did you know, and I'm sure you do now, that we talked about mushrooms at the beginning of the show. Yeah. And I'd seen a documentary recently, which is a link under Colin's show. Yeah. With the podcast he did, I put some links for things. There's a documentary which is all about psilocybin. They use it for palliative care. And apparently it helps people massively that are terminally ill, that are approaching death, you know. Yeah. And it's a, it's a beautiful film. And they interview all these people and at the end of the film, they've got, they all die, obviously, yeah. as they're approaching death. Majority of those people is with cancer, but that's something that is viewed by a lot of the world as something that's unnecessary and recreational and don't see yeah. the benefits. It has massive benefits for certain people, you know. It does, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's it's like the whole thing, isn't it? It's not just selling cyber mushrooms. It's you know using cannabis oil as yeah. well. Yeah. You Which know, half the UK is on now. Yeah, it's it's now, now it, that they're making money out of it, the government. Yeah, but I mean, I mean, pro, you know, when it's stuff with the THC, <laughs> yeah, which yeah. is you know what has massive benefits for people mm. with cancer, it should be something that is made accessible. Yeah. Um, as you know, pain relief and, and pain good relief, for stress you know. relief, and and just generally, if if yeah. your days are numbered, why not have a smile on your face when you're approaching Absolutely. death? You know, and approach it with grace rather than fear, because a lot of certain religions and societies believe that that moment of death. If you're, if you approach that moment and you're happy and content in that yeah. moment and you view your life with joy, yeah, that's when you you have a, a smooth transition into whatever's next. If you're very tense and frightened and scared and living in fear and unhappy Absolutely. and stressed, and when you when the moment comes when you pass over and you transition into the next realm, yeah, then that journey is going to be very traumatic and that journey could continue. You know, so it's really yeah. important that you you're in the best possible place when that time comes, if you if you can. I think it's about compassion as well. Yeah. You know, this is the end stage of our life, and it's about a life well lived full of love and that love and care should be continued right to the point of death and beyond and if somebody being pain free and peaceful and joyful you know is is, is what matters you know I've, I've been to, i've sat with a lot of people who've died i've sat with a few not many yeah. three or four. Oh, i've sat with lots i've yeah. seen you know as, as they passed as, as, that yeah, moment yeah, yeah yeah and you know sometimes it has been very peaceful and sometimes not, you know. Yeah. I mean, as as a as a nurse and a ward sister, 
um, you were always in that very difficult position sometimes because knowing that somebody was in pain, that you could get morphine prescribed, but that morphine might sort of um, affect the respirations. Yeah. So you always had that sort of balance. And I knew some nurses that um, felt very uncomfortable, you know, with giving that morphine as prescribed by the doctor or asking for it to be described, knowing that that would, you know, affect respirations. But, you know, mm. to me, it is about sort of kindness and care um, and making sure that somebody is, you know, sort of pain free. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that it's really important where possible to make somebody comfortable at that moment. And yeah. I think it's very humane and nice to have somebody, you know, sat with you, reading to you, holding your hand, yeah. whatever, you know, to to just help you as you go along. I mean, my Uncle Frank passed and I was lucky enough to, at Bolton Hospice when he was passing, sat with him and he was a staunch Catholic and he was going to be a priest mm. at one point. He couldn't because of epilepsy. Yeah. And I'm not a Catholic. I was brought up a Catholic, but I'm yeah. a Buddhist and I don't necessarily believe those things. But I knew what would make him happy and I, I read the Bible and absolutely yeah. for several hours. And I, I, I was there for a few nights on the bounce. Anyway, I got halfway through the Bible and I still remember where I was up to in the Bible when he passed, but I feel that quite honored to mm. have spent that time with him, you know, and I didn't see it as, I saw it as a beautiful thing, you know, very yeah. melancholy and, but a, a beautiful moment. And I shared it with him and I, I know he's looking down on me now and probably telling me off for taking yeah. my clothes off last week when we shot the <laughs> podcast, but, but yeah, so I think it's beneficial and it as Buddhists we talk about death a lot. You know, we mm. we talk about it openly, we're all going to die. It's approaching. Yeah. You can't start living until you accept that you're dying. You don't want to spend your whole life living in fear of getting yeah. older. So you just embrace this moment and you know, try and experience joy and bliss. That's yeah. all we've got, isn't it? You know? Absolutely. I mean, I'm a pagan, so I mean life and death is just part of that cycle of life. Yeah. You know, it's not something that which we should sort of try and um, hide from, you know, it is there as a fact of life and our ancestors saw it, even going back to the Victorians, you know, as part of that natural cycle of life. It's just in yeah. our youth culture, we don't like it and we feel very uncomfortable with it. But going back to what you were saying, you know, there is that sacredness in death, you know, in being with somebody and supporting a peaceful, blissful death. Yeah. You know, however you do that, you know, I, I mean, I've, I've been... I've sat in those rooms. I've done reflexology and aromatherapy with people at the end of life and noticing how you, when you work with somebody, you're creating almost like a temple, like atmosphere in that room. You know, you're working with somebody, using complementary therapies with somebody who is at the end of life. You can feel their breathing calm, the body calm, that relaxation as they enter a, a deeper sense of peace. And then you see that knock-on effect with the relatives and everybody else in that room as well, that you enter that a, a peaceful state. It's hard to put into words. It's sacred. It's divine, yeah. you know, and that helps everybody cope because when somebody dies, it's not just about that person who dies. It's about loved ones. It's about family, yeah. you know, you know, and the whole sort of grief and bereavement process yeah. as well. What we will touch on later when we when I let you go full tilt and we talk about we we'll just go out, yeah, plants, yeah. Yeah, we? no we're not even going to plants and we're going to talk about you mentioned you're a pagan there about drumming yeah. with the full moon and other such things yeah. as well but we'll we'll get to that yeah 
So this is the point in your journey where you then begin and train as a medical herbalist. That's right, yeah. I've been working with plant medicine for quite a number of years. Making As, as my kids were growing up, I was making salves and creams and, you know, using herbal medicine a lot and decided that I really wanted to do that professionally. And, so you've uh, got a degree in this now, haven't you? I you, have, yeah. Yes. I went to Central Lancashire University and did... Uh, three-year herbal medicine degree. I've got a degree in it. I'm a member of the National Institute of Medical Herbalists. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, uh, you know, that was, that was, it was amazing to do that, to actually formalise um, things I've been doing for years anyway and learn how to treat patients, and how then to do it professionally. You've got the kudos then as well. You've got the letters after your name and yeah. you know, you're, you're yeah. recognised. Rather That's than it. be just a wild, weedy woman, yeah. you're <laughs> recognised then and you know, you then can practice it and those yeah. other things. I mean, that's it. I mean, I'm a consultant medical herbalist. I've got a clinic in Bolton at St. George's Multitherapy Centre. So I see patients in consultation. And Where, where's your place in Bolton again? St. George's Multitherapy Centre. Which is? Where? It's on St. George's Street. Right, so not St. George's Road then, St. George's Street. I think it's St. George's Road, actually, yeah. Okay, right, yeah. bottom of Charlie Old, Charlie New, where they meet, is yeah, it? Yeah, around there somewhere, yeah. Okay. So it's in the centre, so I've got my clinic there. Yeah. And see lots of patients uh, for consultations. So when you work as a medical herbalist, you're doing quite an in-depth consultation. And then you're looking for, you're trying to work with the root causes of illness, you're working holistically, and you're going away, you're formulating a prescription, and then you make, you're dispensing that prescription for people, and you're looking at things like, you know, dietary advice, lifestyle advice, and, um, you know, I, I, I love to see how the plants work with people, how they help people, and they do, Yeah, you know. Well, Still with part of your journey, how this is relevant before we're, we're going to talk about the workshops you run yeah. now and if somebody wants to get in touch with you yeah. and talk about specific plants and we're going to talk about drumming and we're going to yeah. throw lots of things. But in your journey, did you qualify before or after you got involved with the anti-fracking? I qualified first, so I'd been practicing right. a few years. Got you. And yeah, that sort of came afterwards. <laughs> Thank you. 